welcome in and thank you uh, so much for being the church, for bringing it into this room if you're here in person. Uh, thanks for being the church and for uh, joining us online to worship. Uh, for those who are uh, in in person as well as uh, online, we'll be coming to the Lord's table. And so uh, if you're worshiping at home, would encourage you to uh, at some point get your um, yeah, bread and, and juice and uh, we'll come and uh, celebrate the Lord's table together. Uh, we're in a series as we kind of take a little tour of Asia Minor, looking at the churches to whom Jesus wrote letters dictated through a revelation to uh, John, the beloved apostle. Uh, we looked at Ephesus last week. We're looking at Smyrna today. And I want to talk about um, probably the most significant or the most well-known, probably not well-known to most of us, but well-known at the time and throughout the history of the church. The most well-known uh, person, um, at least a church person from Smyrna. There are people like uh, Alexander the Great who looked at Smyrna and wanted to create Smyrna as a model city in Asia Minor. Uh, Homer, the author of the Iliad and the Odyssey, he was born in Smyrna and was well associated with uh, his name is associated with Smyrna, but today I want to talk about this morning, I want to, as we begin, I want to talk about uh, a man named Polycarp. Polycarp, when he was a teenager, uh, came to know the Apostle John, uh, the beloved Apostle who ended up writing the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. It was most likely the, uh, the case that the church in Ephesus planted the church in Smyrna, and at some point, John, who oversaw the churches in Asia Minor, appointed Polycarp to be the leader of that church in Smyrna. About 155 AD, Polycarp was 86 years old and he was still serving in this capacity as the bishop, as the overseer, as the leader, as a pastor of the church in Smyrna. And during that time, 155 AD, um, as we've been talking about, there has been a ruthless and pervasive persecution that was coming to the church throughout Asia Minor and to the churches uh, that were bowing to uh, the name of Jesus in that time. And so Polycarp, as a leader of the church in Smyrna, was in the midst of that persecution. His life was constantly threatened, as were his uh, church members, the flock of Smyrna. And in 155, he had a dream. He had a dream that he was sleeping and that the pillow upon which he was sleeping was burning and he woke up and immediately he knew what that meant. So he said to his church, he said, I'm going to be burned for the gospel for the sake of Christ. And so his people, so in love with their dear bishop, with their dear leader, pleaded with him that he would flee Smyrna and he would go into hiding, which he did. So he was in hiding and one of the, the, this, this young girl of the church of Smyrna was threatened by uh, the authorities, and demanded her to tell them under threat of punishment and death to tell them where Polycarp was hiding. And so uh, under pressure, she gave in and she said, he is in this place, wherever the place was. And so the authorities, both the Roman and Jewish authorities went and together uh, they were hunting down Polycarp. Uh, it was the Jews, right, who were some of the fiercest persecutors of Christians in those days. They said either he'll be thrown to lions or he'll be burned at the stake one or the other. And so when the Romans went to arrest him, when the Jews went to, to hunt him down, they found him in hiding. And though historians say he could have fled, he could have escaped, instead he chose to stay. And when the captors came to him, he offered them food and drink to eat because they had come from such a long way. Moved with compassion, the Roman general, the Roman captain who is taking him said, what harm would it be for you to simply confess that Caesar is Lord? What harm would it be? And then you could go back to worshiping the Jesus that you love and worship. What harm could that do? And Polycarp just looked at this man and he said, for me, Christ alone is Lord. You have no rival. You have no equal now and forevermore you reign. I will not bow to the Caesar, even in words. And so as he took him by carriage to, back to Smyrna, they took him into an amphitheater where he was forced out of the carriage, violently pushed out, and he was led before the Roman proconsul. And the proconsul said to this 86-year-old man, he said, bow to Caesar, renounce Christ, or die. And Polycarp said, for 86 years, I have served Jesus. 
and he has never let me down. He has been faithful to me. How could I do such a thing and blaspheme the name of the God that I love? And so the proconsul said, you will be, <laughs> you will be uh, burned at the stake if you do not renounce your faith in Christ and bow to Caesar. And Polycarp looked at him, and again he said, You threaten me with flames which last for a moment because you are unaware of the eternal fire and torment that awaits in the judgment for those who are wicked. He said, Do with me as you wish. And so they did. And as they prepared to burn him at the stake, it was the Jews who took wood and they throw, threw it down and were preparing to tie him at the stake when he said, Leave me to be. The God whose grace will strengthen me in the fire will keep me from leaving this post. I will die and give my life for my Christ. And so it was that this 86-year-old Polycarp, the bishop and the leader of the church in Smyrna, died as a martyr for Jesus Christ in 155 A.D. And history says that from that place, the church in Smyrna began to grow, and it began to thrive. He was one of dozens of martyrs who gave their lives, significant martyrs who gave their lives for Christ. And to this very day in present-day Izmir, which is ancient-day Smyrna, there is still a church, the, one, the only one out of the seven churches of Asia Minor where there is a small church, a gathering of about 10 to 15 people, who confessed the name of Jesus Christ as Lord. And the words that encouraged Polycarp to give his life to Christ were the words that we're going to read today that were written by the one that he knew, uh, the Apostle John. We're going to look at these words and what they say to us. Uh, Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. We're going to read these words and then we're going to see what God's Spirit has to say to His church today, uh, here at Harvest and here throughout the world. Revelation chapter 2, verse 8, I'm just going to read the first part, uh, just verse 8 for now, and then I'll, I'll pause, and then we'll read the rest of it. It says, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write. So Smyrna was about 35 to 40 miles north of Ephesus. Again, it was most likely the case that the church in Ephesus went and throughout Asia Minor on this mail route, they planted and started this church in Smyrna. Smyrna was uh, probably one of the three most important cities in Asia Minor, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, the first three on this mail route, probably the three most important cities of the time. Um, Alexander the Great wanted to make this into uh, one of the model cities of, of Asia Minor. That's one of the things it was famous for. But one of the, the monuments and the landmarks that defined Smyrna was a hill called the Pagos. It was called the Pagos. Uh, it was in the, the middle of the city, and all surrounding it, uh, beautifully adorned were temples to false gods, to the worship of emperors, to the worship of Rome. This is what was significant. It looked like a necklace. Okay? It looked like a necklace hanging on top of a hill. It was a beautifully adorned city, and everything about it cultivated uh, a sense of pride. Now, the interesting thing about Smyrna, what it was well known for, was its intense allegiance uh, to the Roman Empire. Uh, at a time when Rome and Carthage were in battle with each other, it was Smyrna who chose to side with Rome, and Rome never forgot about that. They pledged their undying devotion and loyalty to Rome, and because of that, Rome protected Smyrna and uh, gave them a lot of different privileges. Um, about 150, 120 years before Christ came, uh, Smyrna became the first city outside of the Roman Empire to build a temple built simply to honor the God that they called Rome, right? This is a temple to just worship Rome. In 26 AD, so right around the time that Jesus was crucified, 26 AD, there was a big kind of like a contest that was held among seven major cities. Uh, some say it was a dozen cities, but at least seven cities to see which of these places would become the home to the worship of the emperor of Rome. It was, like the major, it was like a major bidding war, like cities bid for the Olympic Games or cities bid for the World Cup. They were bidding to see who would get the privilege of hosting a temple built to honor and worship the emperor, and Smyrna was chosen out of all of the other cities. This was a, this was a city that was intensely loyal 
to Rome and to the worship of their emperors. This would be one of the reasons why persecution against Christians would be so fierce because Christians, unlike other religions, refuse to worship multiple gods and to add the gods of Rome and the emperor to the pantheon of gods that they worship because there was only one. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall have no other gods before me. That's what God said to the people of God, and that's what Christians like us hold to to this very day. The cause of such persecution, and this is what Jesus says in, um, as we continue in verse 8 through 11. These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you're rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you'll suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. This is God's Word. So what is God saying uh, to the church? If we remember the seven churches of Asia Minor, uh, seven is a number of perfection, and while these are real churches in Asia Minor, there were multiple churches in Asia Minor, but Jesus chose to spoke to these specific ones something that was very particular to their situation. But taken together, these are symbolic of a message, taken together as the seven, the message of God to the church universal. And if they are marks of what a true church ought to be, then there's a message that Jesus has to us through each of them. What is God saying to us today? If there's a word that defined the people of Smyrna, the church in Smyrna, it would be persecution. If the true mark of the church, as we saw in Ephesus, was love, then the true mark, second true mark of a church is that there will be persecution. Three thoughts today. Here's the first one. Here's the first thing. The church that loves Jesus will endure persecution. The church that loves Jesus will endure persecution. Smyrna was synonymous with persecution. And yet in the midst of Jesus talking about this, there's a familiar pattern that you'll see as you read through. If you read through the, uh, the book of Revelation chapters 2 and 3, you'll see as Jesus writes to each of the seven churches, there's a pattern by and large that they follow. Number one, he introduces himself as a speaker and he gives certain descriptors of himself that are particular to that church in need. The second thing he does is he explains the setting. He explains who I'm writing to. The third thing he does is he calls out the strengths of that particular church. This is what you do great. The fourth thing he does is he calls out the sin within the church. And yet I have this against you. And then he talks about here's what it means to be successful. This is what you need to do. And then he gives a summons. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. But in two of these churches, okay, in two of these churches, there are no words of rebuke, of reproof. There's no sin that's being called out. One of them is a church in Smyrna. Jesus does not say, as you suffer, be faithful to the point of death, yet this I hold against you. You have forsaken your first love. He doesn't say that like he did to the church in Ephesus. Why? Well, because they had not forsaken their first love. Words without heart are null and void, but a heart, even lacking words, becomes a joy and a blessing to the heart of God. They may not have had the words, but they had the love, and they were willing to lay down their lives in glad witness. Why? Because you know this. If you've ever been in love with anyone or anything or any place, the proof of your love is a willingness to suffer and to pay the price for the one that you love, isn't it? My friend, that some of you have been, been praying for Sam and his um, and his wife who's gone home to be with Jesus, Sarah. Sam sent me a, a text and a picture this week. Uh, he got a tattoo. He got a tattoo uh, of handwriting that his wife, he, Sarah, had written a letter, said, with love, and then it, it signed her name, Sarah. He got a tattoo of that uh, on his uh, ribcage area. She sent that, I was like, dude, that's beautiful. And then I, I said, that must have hurt, though. <laughs> and he wrote back, and he's like, nah, wasn't bad at all. And immediately I thought, even if there was pain, I probably wouldn't have felt it. 
Because when you love, you're willing to suffer for the one that you love. You know, people say sometimes, hey, you know what, DL, I love, I love our church. I love Harvest. I love it so much. And that fills me with gladness. It really does. I get really happy about that. But the question I sometimes want to ask is, but what are you willing, what are you willing to show as the proof of that love? Because you know, a, a lot of people, what they mean when they say I love our church is I get so much out of it. Love isn't love in the same way a bell's not a bell until you ring it, a song's not a song unless you sing it. Love in your heart wasn't put there to stay. Love isn't love until you give it away. Proof of love is not how you feel about someone or something. It's only love if it takes you outside of what you think is comfortable. And there's a price involved and a cost involved in it. Suffering is the proof of your love. In fact, a, a glad suffering is a proof of love because anyone can suffer for anything as a matter of duty. But a willingness to suffer joyfully and gladly for something or someone, is that not the truest proof of someone's love? To be willing to say, yeah, I love you, that I would do anything. I would walk 10,000 miles for you. I would walk through fire for you. I would climb mountains. I would swim any sea for you. I would do that for you. Is that not the cost and the proof of love? Isn't the genuineness of a love shown in a willingness to suffer for the thing or the person that you so love? Love isn't love until you give it away. And a church that genuinely loves Jesus will endure persecution. Because you see, the thing about the church in Smyrna is that they gladly gave their lives to follow Jesus. They were willing to put their lives on the line to follow Jesus, even to the point of death. This sounds foreign to us for a lot of different reasons, but one of them is which we don't think suffering is something that we want to embrace. We do everything we can to shun suffering from our lives, don't we? This is just American privilege here. We can do that. We don't need to pay a price in order to come here and to worship God. The biggest price we're paying is, oh my gosh, I'm afraid I might get sick of COVID even though we're socially distanced. That's the cost that we pay. We're not, nobody's hunting us down right now here and worshiping in this place. But we do everything we can to avoid suffering because that's the American mindset. It makes sense for us to do that though. I mean, that's, we get to do that. That's okay. We get anesthesia before we have surgery. That's fine. That's a, that's a blessing, and it's a privilege that we have. Before you give birth, you get that epidural shot. That's awesome. We want you to do that. But that kind of a mentality, when it seeps into the way that we live life, especially the Christian life, is antithetical to the way that Jesus calls us to live for Christ. See, in the church in Smyrna, their deepest desire, they understood a spiritual secret. In fact, it's not a secret at all. Jesus said it from the outset. The greatest aim of life is not to avoid suffering. The greatest aim of life is to follow Jesus, come what may. Do you understand this, people of God? As we follow Jesus, the greatest aim in life is not that I could follow Jesus and avoid suffering. The greatest aim in life is that I could follow Jesus. That's it. Sometimes it leads us on the road marked with suffering. Sometimes that leads us on the path of persecution, but that doesn't mean we're on the wrong. Following Jesus oftentimes leads us into such places, and it's the proof of the genuineness of our love for Jesus. What did it look like for the church in Smyrna to follow Jesus? Well, they had a choice. Just like all the churches in Asia Minor did, as persecution was running ragged throughout Asia Minor, it was either we're going to stay faithful to Christ and persecution will come, or we're going to compromise and we're going to avoid per persecution. What would you choose if this was your lot? Here's what Jesus says. I know your afflictions. Literally means the weight is so heavy on you. I know your poverty. It's the interesting thing. He says, I know your poverty, and yet Smyrna was one of the richest cities in Asia Minor. Why were they poor in the midst of that city? I know the slander of those who say they are Jews, but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Don't be afraid. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison. Be faithful even to the point of death. There were multiple levels 
of persecution that they were going through. What did that, what did that look like? In the midst of a society whose economy was booming, here were a group of people who were poor, not because they weren't smart, not because they weren't skilled, but because they followed Jesus. What did that mean? Well, there's a, a group of Jews who were upset at the Christians. Uh, you know, this is because as the Christians were propagating the name of Jesus, whom the Jews could not understand that a, gal- that a, that a peasant who was crucified could be worshipped as God, that was blasphemy to them. And so they're trying to stamp out the Christian movement, and so they began slandering the Christians in Smyrna and throughout the, the, the world at the time. And because of that, Christians amongst all people were scapegoated in Smyrna. So it cost them their jobs, even though they were skilled at their labor. A lot of them were kicked out of their labor guild so that they could not honestly work, legally work. Some of them had their stores looted and stores burned out. In the midst of an economy that was thriving in a booming city, it was the Christians who were paying a financial cost in financial persecution. Not only that, they were slandered. They were mistakenly spoken about. Have you ever been a victim of gossip? And it was all a bunch of lies. That's what they were going through. They were being gossiped about. They were being lied about. They were being talked down on. They were being slandered. And it was impacting all of the way that they lived, not only their jobs, but all of life. It says they were thrown in prison. Prison in those days is not like prison today, where you, you don't get three meals a day. You don't get to work towards your college education. You don't get a degree in prison. Prison there, like Rome, had no, they had no desire to babysit criminals. They'll throw them on an island of Patmos. they put them in prison. Jesus says here for 10 days you'll be put in prison. Most likely commentators are saying it's definitely a finite time, but oftentimes it was because you would be beaten so badly in prison that you would die not standing 10 days. Other people said you'd get beaten so bad and thrown out on the streets because they didn't want to house you in their Roman jail system. People were being thrown in prison because they worshipped the God, because they did things like you and I are doing. Simply because of that, they were thrown in jail, and and it says many of them were put to death. That's what it meant to follow Jesus. The mark of a church that loves Jesus is that we will face persecution. This is bizarre to us, not only because we do everything we can to avoid suffering, and we sometimes feel that that is our God-given right to not suffer in this life, but also because as Christians in America, we don't have to suffer like that. The worst we suffer is people are apathetic when we witness to them. Oh my gosh, I can't believe, they're, they, I can't believe they rejected me. They t- one t- Sometimes I, I share this in, in, in some of our classes. I was in college and at, at a bus stop, I was sharing the, trying to share the gospel with this guy. And I said, hey, do you, uh, do you believe in heaven and hell? And he looked at me and he looked me up and down and he said, yeah, I, I don't believe it. But if I believed in it, I'd rather choose hell if people like you are going to be in heaven. I was like, thank you very much. <laughs> we got on the same bus and sat next to each other. It's very awkward. We're heading in the same direction. But still, we see that as persecution. But that's not the loss of job, the loss of reputation, the loss of freedom, the loss of life. And the church in Smyrna had every opportunity, the bishop of Smyrna, Polycarp, had every opportunity to say, yeah, you know what? Uh, Okay, guys, why don't we do this? We're supposed to say Caesar is Lord every year. Once a year, you have to do this. Once a year, you have to do this. Say Caesar is Lord, you burn incense, you get a card that says you're a loyal citizen of the Roman Empire living in Smyrna. The Christians would not do that, so they didn't get their Roman citizen card. Could they have? Could they have said, hey, you know what? Let's just go together and cross our fingers. That means like whatever I say is negated. Just put our fingers behind our back, cross our fingers and say, Caesar is Lord, and then quickly repent of it and go on our way. We won't lose our job. We'll still be with our families. We could just say that and say, hey, you know what? It was just words. My heart wasn't in it. I don't, re- I don't really, Jesus, you know I don't really worship Caesar. You're the only Lord I have. I just said it in order to, ne- look at me. I can have a greater witness for you if I'm alive than when I'm dead. And, and we could make up all kinds of reasons why compromise is acceptable for them. If they really loved Jesus, it would be unthinkable for them to compromise the name of Christ. If I'm in love with my wife, Olivia, it would be unthinkable for me to even, the thought cross my mind that I would say I'm not married to anybody. That, that doesn't make any sense. 
because love is a willingness to identify faithfully and a willingness to suffer. It proves the genuineness of love. And the first thing that we see in the... Re- Listen, we got to let the chips fall where they may. I've got to talk about this thing. If I was just going, hey, let's just choose four churches in Asia Minor and talk about what Jesus says to them, we would do that. I might not talk about this, but listen, if I'm not preparing us as a church to suffer for the sake of the gospel, then we are not being discipled according to the word of God. Like we need to be prepared now to one day suffer for Christ. The church that loves him will endure persecution. That's the first thing. The second thing that we see is that persecution purifies the church. And suffering will make the church strong. Persecution will purify the church, and suffering will make the church strong. Again, out of seven churches, two of them had no words of reproof, no words of rebuke, no sin to call out. Why? Well, it's very interesting to see that the two churches that did not receive any rebuke were the two churches that were on the front lines of persecution, unlike any of the other churches. Why didn't Jesus have anything negative to say about these churches? Not because they were perfect, but because persecution has a way of purifying the church, has a way of purifying the bride, has a way of purifying every child of God. Jesus, as he talks to his church, as he thinks about his bride, longs for a church that is pure. We think about the church in America. I don't want to sound like a hater. I, I, I love and I will not give up on the church. Never, ever, ever, because Jesus doesn't. But you think about the church, and some of the words that unbelievers will say about the church are things like, hypocritical, judgmental, more known for what they're against than what they're for, corrupt, two-faced, whatever it is that they would say. Think about the churches that are the most pure. They're oftentimes the ones that are most persecuted and the ones that are most compromising are often the ones that are most comfortable. Somebody once said that, and you could just hear this for what it is. I'm quoting somebody. Somebody once said the problem with the church in America is that nobody's trying to kill them. Think about it. If you were the church in Smyrna, if Jesus was writing to the church in winter, what if Jesus were to say, to the angel of the church harvest in winter garden, I know your afflictions and your poverty. I know the slander of those who say there's something or other, but synagogue of Satan... Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. The devil will put some of you in prison. Be faithful unto death. If that was a word directly to if Jesus was like, came here and he's like, I got a word for you guys, and he just started speaking to us, like from his heart. And this was our life. I can't imagine, it, it, like if the world was hunting us down, right? If, if the world was hating on us, if the world was trying to kill us, do you think we would fall in love with the world? If people outside the church were trying to kill us, do you think we'd be fighting with one another if this is the only family that we had? If we were thrown in jail and we were being beaten and we we're in solitary confinement, do you think we would lose our first love if the only one who was there with us was our first love, Jesus? See, a lot of times this doesn't make any sense to us because this is so separated. This is 2,000 years ago. This is Smyrna. This is Turkey. This is not America in the 21st century. It seems so far away from us that we don't think this has relevance to how we live life. And so we need to hear stories of those in other places to be reminded that this is the reality. In a, a few weeks, uh, Eugene mentioned this, on May 23rd, we're going to hear from some of our friends who've been with us for a few months, who spent time in two of the most persecuted nations in the world. And they stood on the front lines, and they're going to share the work of God. 
and they're going to talk about the things that they've seen and how God showed up and how he moved in those places. I want to encourage you to come and hear. Get a fire lit in your belly for what God is doing and the faithfulness of the saints and the purity of the church in places where their lives are in danger. I remember, and I've talked about this often, about my trip when I went to, uh, to Asia a few years ago, and I went with some of, some of my pastor friends, and, and we were serving on the board of this agency, and, and the leader called us out and said, why don't you come so that you could see what's going on so that you could support us better? That's what she said. But really, we realized it was a bait and switch. Like, there was nothing that we could really give to the people there. These people were being persecuted, whose lives are in danger, who'd given up everything in order to follow Jesus, given up everything to be trained in seminary in order that they could then go and bring the gospel to their homeland. Some of them had left 15, 15 hours, left their families behind for months at a time, realized very quickly, hey, we're not, <laughs> we're not here uh, to give anything to them. Holy cow. We're here because we need to be here. In fact, at the end of our trip, um, the leader of the organization, she, she's a, a woman because her husband was a leader of the organization, but he had been killed because the churches had been growing too big and their influence was getting too big, and so they were, they were killed by this communist government. And it was a, you know, there's a long story to it, but she became uh, the de facto head and she was leading with the same vigor and, and passion uh, to reach the lost there in that country and to lay down her life in gospel witness. Towards the end of the trip, she said to us, she said, uh, I thought about canceling this trip because it, it happened in the midst of a, a rising swell of anti-Western sentiment in that nation. And so there was risk to us, risk to their ministry, risk to the people there. She said, I, I was thinking about canceling the trip, but I felt God saying, these second-generation American pastors need to come and they need to bring back the passion that my people have and take it back to America because they need to see that there are saints among us of whom the world is not worthy. It's a far cry from the celebrity pastor culture of podcasts and videos and YouTube channels making people famous. That's not, these people don't even, they don't even say their real names. They'd rather be nobodies on earth in order to have headlines in heaven. That's the church in Smyrna. That's the persecuted church. That's the church around the world. One, one pastor who had been serving in churches underground and then above ground and then because he'd be, churches began to get too big went back underground, he said, my church builds itself on five pillars. It's the word of God. It's prayer. It's that every person in our church, even at the risk of death, is going to share the gospel with their friends who don't know Jesus. The fourth pillar is we have an expectation that God's going to work miracles. And then the fifth is that through suffering, the kingdom of God is going to advance and God's going to be glorified through our church. That's not, hey, these things are, are things to remember. He said these are the pillars of our church. Guys, we're expecting, we're expecting you to share the gospel even if it costs you life. And we're going to suffer. Like, we're going to suffer for the glory of God because you cannot... You think about this. It, like, there was a time I was at, I was at a hospital. Uh, I forgot why I was there, but I was visiting somebody, and I was in the waiting room. There's a TV, and there's a wrestler named The Undertaker there. And there was this other dude. He was, I, think, I don't know if he was homeless, but he was sitting watching TV. He was kind of an older man in his 60s. And he looked, all, he looked kind of weird, looked all bugged out. But the undertaker was a wrestler. He looked like he was dead, kind of, he's an undertaker. And then um, this old man, like 60-year-old man, started talking to me. And he, he I don't know if he, was, if he had like demonic oppression or something like that, but he was just like kind of like freaky deaky. So he said to me, you know who that is? I was like, yeah, man, that's the undertaker. He's like, you know who the best wrestler in the world is? I was like, Hulk Hogan? He's like, no, the undertaker. I was like, all right. He's like, you know why he's so good? I was like, uh, why? This is what he said to me. <laughs> like, because you can't kill what's already dead. It's like, what you talking about, Willis? <laughs> like, how does that make any sense? I was like, yes, sir. He said, have a, have a great day. And I left. I was like, dude, it got kind of weird. How do you, how do you do, what do you do? How do you stop a church that's willing to suffer for the sake of the God? That's an unstoppable church right there. That's an unstoppable church who's willing to suffer because they believe that the gospel release 
flows through the suffering of the saints. The seminary that was started in that country by this organization had relationships with some pretty prestigious seminaries here in America. In fact, uh, both the founder and his wife had, had, had gone to a major seminary here in America whose name that you would recognize and be familiar with if, you, uh, if you're familiar with seminaries. But they heard about the work that was going on in this country, and they said to the leader, they said, hey, how can we, how can we support you? How can we get involved in the work of our alum? She said, well, if you want to come and you want to teach us, our, our people, and train them, you can do that. And they said, yeah, we can do that. We would love to do that. And the question that they asked, distinguished faculty, said, can you ensure our safety when we're there? And she said, can I ensure your safety? I don't know how she said it. This is how she communicated it to us. She said, my husband, who started this, who was trained by you, was killed by the government. And you're asking me if I can ensure your safety? Jesus doesn't even guarantee your safety as you follow him on the road of discipleship. I cannot guarantee your safety. She said it was then that I knew that these were not the kind of people I wanted to train my people who are willing to lay down their lives for the gospel of Christ. Persecution has a way of purifying the church and suffering has a way of strengthening it for the work that God wants to do in us. What do we do if we're living in America and we don't get persecuted? Do we pray for it? Do we seek it? Absolutely not. He's saying here, makes it clear, hey, this is of the synagogue of Satan. The enemy wants to kill. The enemy wants to persecute. Don't go seeking that out. In faithfulness to the call of God, that will happen to you naturally. You don't, you don't pray for that. In fact, yeah, we absolutely don't. But until that time comes, here's what my suggestion would be for us. The way that you win the battles later is you win the little battles now. The way that you pass the big test later is you pass the little test now. What does that look like? It means we begin to take ourselves out of that which is comfortable and put ourselves into positions that we might consider to be suffering. But the rest of the world might just think it's not being comfortable. What does that mean? It means maybe, hey, you wake up at 6 o'clock when normally you wake up at 8 o'clock and you prepare yourself to do hard things for the sake of Christ. Maybe it means you fast one meal or two meals a day and you begin praying, Lord, strengthen me. Oh, can we, can we just fast social media because I love food? That's the problem. Because you love food more than you love Jesus, you're not willing to be uncomfortable for the sake of the gospel, and you're not willing to risk your food for Christ, you're not willing to risk anything for Christ. Going on a mission trip. Oh, but I work, you know, that mission trip is for people who've got summer vacation. Then take vacation days, take sick days, do unpaid leave, whatever it is, and put yourself out there to see what God is doing in the world in order that you might be strengthened now in order that you could overcome later. Because persecution has a way of purifying the church and suffering has a way of strengthening it. Oh, I love our church. I love Jesus so much. May I ask, what is the proof of that love? It's not the songs that we sing. What is my heart? You can't see my heart. Don't judge my heart. Let your heart be put into action. It's not just coming on Sunday. It's not even adding another thing to the week. It's, oh, I go to prayer meeting too. That's a maybe, maybe that's, maybe that's what it is. Maybe that's the next step. But for some of us, what's the next step into the heart of Jesus? It's the second thing that we see. The last thing that we see, how are we going to do this? It's scary. The last thing that we see is that faith drives out fear. And faith will enable you to be faithful. When they come knocking on your door, it's what he's saying to the church in Smyrna. When you're fearing for your life, what do you do? Jesus says, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. You'll suffer persecution for 10 days. But be faithful even to the point of death. 
You know, when you were afraid when you were little, what was it that helped you? When all you see is all you think there is, it can be really scary. When you're in the dark and you can't see anything, it's really fearful. When you think there's something under your bed because you can't see what's there and all you're doing is you're putting pieces together in your mind of what might be lurking underneath it. What did your parents do? What did you do to your kids when they said there's something that's scaring me at night? Well, they came and they sat with you. They turned on the light. They showed you there's nothing underneath. They showed you what you could not see. What Jesus is saying is if all you see is all you see, then you're not seeing all that there is to see. That's what the book of Revelation is. It is the unveiling of that which we do not see with our eyes. He says, I tell you, this is going to happen. In other words, I'm in complete control even over your sufferings. You'll be put in prison for 10 days. In order, there's going to be a finite time to this. He says, do not be afraid. It's the most common command in Scripture. Jesus says, if you're faithful, man, you're going to get a crown of life. He doesn't say, listen, guys, be, don't be afraid because it will get better. He doesn't say that there's no promises of safety in this life. But he says, don't be afraid. Be faithful because heaven is around the corner for the people of God. In other words, for the child of God, this life is as close to hell as you and I will ever get. Do you understand this? This life and the suffering we go through in life is as close to hell as we'll ever get. But for those who don't know Jesus, this life is as close to heaven as they'll ever get. He's saying, the line is drawn. You make your choice here. He lays it all out. All you see is they're going to come and they're going to arrest you. They're going to persecute you. That's all you see. Jesus says, let me give you the unveiling. Let me show you the whole thing. You know, like my favorite movie director, M. Night Shyamalan, he did uh, uh, The Sixth Sense, uh, The Village, uh, Unbreakable. What else did he do? He did some other ones that were like garbage, but he did some really good ones. When you watch that movie, you're like, holy cow, there's like little pieces that have been embedded into the storyline, and then at the end, it all makes sense. If you know the end of it, if you know the end of Sixth Sense, and then you start watching it, you're like, dude, this is like, this is awesome. Like, I can, I don't know that we enjoy persecution, but we see the whole picture. It enables us to understand what's going on, and we can go through it without fear because we see the whole thing unveiled and revealed to us. That's what Jesus is showing us. Faith is what drives out the fear. Jesus says, this is what's going to happen. See it with eyes of faith. And let that drive out your fear. In other places, in Psalm 56.3, the psalmist David says, I will not be afraid. I will trust in God. In Mark, uh, Mark 5.36, Jesus says, don't be afraid. Just believe in me. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that when fear knocks at your door, if faith opens, ain't going to be nobody there. In other words, the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is fear. But in the midst of fear, when you put your faith in Christ, the fear begins to be driven away. Jesus says, do not be afraid. And then he says, be faithful even to the point of death. The word faith and the word faithful are actually the same thing. If you have faith in Jesus, like you have faith in Jesus, then you're going to be faithful to him. If you trust in Jesus, then you're going to become a trustworthy person. If you rely on Jesus, you're going to be a reliable person. If you have faith, then you will be grounded in faithfulness. That's who we are. And the more pure that faith, the more pure that trust, the more pure that reliance, the more that purity will be seen in our character of trustworthiness and reliability and faithfulness. When we depend on God, we'll become the most dependable people there are. And Jesus is saying, be faithful. Be faithful. 
the result is that you'll receive the crown of life. It's the same thing he said last week. You'll eat from the tree of life, you'll receive the crown of life. He said the crown to Smyrna because they knew what it was to participate in these athletic competitions. He says your suffering is fitting you for a crown that you'll one day receive when you stand before the judge of all. Be faithful. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. Jesus is saying, you trust in me, then you will die once the death of the body, but you will not taste a second death, the death of the soul. Jesus shows us the reality that eternity is and that eternity matters and that it awaits those who are faithful to him, who put their trust in him. And so it was that this church, this persecuted minority, began to shine as the bride that he saw in his heart when he offered up his life. And it's no small wonder, too, that the church that suffered the most was a church in the city of Smyrna who gets his name in Greek from the word myrrh. Smyrna literally means a city of myrrh. What is myrrh? The only reason we know what myrrh is because it was one of the gifts of the Magi given to Jesus on the occasion of his birth. A strange gift to give to one who was born because it was a gift given to people when they die. The oil of the myrrh comes from being squeezed and pressed and crushed, and there the oil would come out. It would be used to embalm bodies of those who had just, been, who had just died, and a beautiful fragrant aroma would rise up in the place of death. I think when heaven looked down, and it saw the church in Smyrna, persecuted, beaten, crushed, suffering, hurting, laying down their lives. Can't help but imagine how much they would have smelled like Jesus. He too was the one who was slandered and gossiped, crucified, hung to die, suffered for the sake of the glory of God. And out of his death came a fragrant aroma, the aroma of Christ, which gives life even in the place of death. The church of Smyrna was so in love with Jesus and spent so much time with Jesus that they began to look and to act and to talk and to smell like Christ that that would be said of us also, that that church, man, they look like Jesus. That church harvest, they really look like Jesus. They smell like Jesus. That's what Jesus would be like. That's what he would be like. So to the church here, let's remember our first love. Let's be faithful to the point of death because your suffering for Christ is indeed fitting you for a crown crown from Jesus. Let's pray together. As we pray, how might you need to respond to the Lord today? Maybe there's a conviction in your heart, for as much as Jesus has suffered for me, I have sought to avoid suffering for him. Father, forgive me for being so comfortable in my faith. Maybe for others it's, Father, forgive me for the compromise in my life. I know I love you. But sometimes when push comes to shove, in moments of testing, I love something more than I love you. I'm sorry for what I've made it. Somewhere in the hearts of the church in Smyrna, they were able to say, I love my Jesus deep down in my heart. 
May the same be true of our hearts as well. Maybe our prayer would be, Lord, help me to be faithful now. Lord, I want to take myself out of comfort into a place where I push and challenge myself so that when the greater tests of faith come, that I'll be able to stand faithfully for the one who faithfully stood for me. Let's pray for a minute together, asking the Lord you would help us. And then as we prepare to come to a grace-bought table for those dressed in his righteousness alone, let's pray that we would come in a manner worthy of the gospel by confessing, repenting of our sins before the Lord. Let's pray for a minute or so. I'll pray for us and we'll continue on. Father in heaven, um, we want to be able to say that we love Jesus deep down in our hearts, that there'd be no compromise in us. And when people want to know, well, how do we know that you love Jesus, that it wouldn't be hard to tell? Before they could finish asking the question that they'd say, you know what, never mind, I don't need to ask. I see it in the way that you live. I see it in the way that you love. I see it in the way that you are willing to pay the cost to love Jesus. Oh, Lord, help us to be faithful as a church and as individuals. When all is said and done, that you would find us faithful. We don't have to be awesome. We don't have to be famous. We don't have to be excellent. We don't need to be praised. We don't need to be applauded. We don't need to be on the top. We just want to be faithful. Until we get to the end of our race. See our friends, our family, who've entered into glory, waiting for us. And we see the prize of our lives, Jesus. The crown of life. Far more glorious than anything we could ever dare to dream. Expand our vision of glory. Show us what heaven is really like. It's a place that no eye has seen, no mind has, no ear has heard, no mind has ever conceived. Heaven is not just like the best place on earth times 10, unlike anything we could ever imagine. Show us that it's coming and that's our home. We can be with you forever. The new heavens and the new earth. Lord, ground our faithfulness in yours. Ground our love in yours and help us to be faithful every day in the little deaths and faithful even to the point of death for the glory of God and for the joy of our Savior. We thank you so much. We love you because you've loved us first. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.